all of life through the eyes of Jesus Christ, viewing everything, since we're followers of Christ, viewing everything as Jesus sees things. This morning, we're going to be talking about having Jesus' understanding of faith. How did Jesus understand faith? I mean, that's a huge word that we speak about, probably mentioned several times every Sunday during a service and probably in our lives during the week. We always talk about faith, our faith. How did Jesus see faith? How did he define it? Well, we're going to take a look at that this morning, but as a starting point to sort of launch us into this, I've asked um, Phil Acklin and his wife, Merritt. They're going to come this morning, uh, just two weeks ago, today, in fact. Phil, uh, he's going to share a story with us about an unexpected, very close brush with death that Phil had just two weeks ago today, this afternoon. And, uh, and I think what he's going to have to share is, going to, is certainly going to speak to us about the issue of faith. So let's welcome Phil and Merritt as they come. Good morning. Um, well, first of all, to, to put to rest some people that know me, I didn't do this for attention, okay? It's just, um, so two weeks ago, um, I was in church, and I, I, I knew I wasn't feeling well, but doggone, I was going to be here because... All my kids were here. My, my son and his wife from Japan, they just came back. We hadn't seen them in two, two and a half years. And, and my son from Kenosha came down. And we hadn't been in church together in 10 years. So I, I made sure I was here even though I, I knew I wasn't feeling well. Um, when we went out for lunch, she, my wife Merritt knew that something was wrong when I didn't want to eat. And so I went to an urgent care clinic. And um, they uh, diagnosed me as having a urinary tract infection. And so I was given an injection, and I went and got the right antibiotic and everything, went home, and was actually feeling a little better. And then the evening, we had a big party to celebrate my son's return. And so I had all my family, we had like 35 people in our house. But as soon as people started coming, I just got really sick. I felt really horrible. I, would, I spent the entire you know, evening in the bedroom, and I was shaking, and I, had a, I was sweating, no, no fever, and um, so then I was taken to the emergency room, and, um, you know, I walked in, and they uh, hooked me up and, you know, took my blood pressure and everything. And when I went in, my, my white blood cell count was about 5, which slightly elevated, and oh, it was normal. And then my, um, my blood pressure was, was low. It was like 100 over 60, but it was low for me, but it's still kind of within normal limits. As soon as they got me in there... Everything fell apart. My, um, my uh, white blood cell count went up to like 20, and my heart's racing. I'm sweating, nauseous, and my blood pressure just kept dropping and dropping and dropping. And what, what it was was sepsis. So the, even though I was diagnosed correctly with the UTI, the infection had gotten so, you know, in my body so much that it was, it was literally shutting down my organs. And, like, my kidneys weren't functioning. My liver wasn't functioning. And um, at the low point, my blood pressure was 42 over 22. So it was a very long night. And I, I had no idea. I was just, you know. Um, so anyway, um, I'd like to give God specific thanks for two, two things. Um, one is uh, getting me there at the right time. Now, my wife is a nurse, Merritt. She's a very good nurse. And sometimes she's a, she uses tough love. So she might have thought, well, you know, you have the antibiotic, and, you know, why don't you just get, you know, two Tylenol and go to bed, and maybe feel better in the morning. Well, on Wednesday, 
<clears throat> she went to our doctor for something unrelated, and he asked her, why, why did you bring him in? And she said, I don't know. I just felt like I should. And he said, if you hadn't, he would, he would have been dead in the morning. Like, they hadn't gone in. And if, and if I had if I'd gone in earlier, they might have just sent me home because I, it didn't seem like I was that sick. So I want to thank God specifically for uh, his timing. And then also, um, I'd like to thank him for the, the fast recovery. Uh, Monday morning, Merritt was busy texting everybody and had a lot of people praying for me. I, I had seven churches, uh, a lot of family and friends. I had a couple missionaries. I had, we even had a convent full of nuns praying for me. Um, and uh, by Wednesday, um, I, was, I was doing much better, and the, the head nurse came in and, because she said she wanted to see the miracle man because, like, no one recovers from sepsis that quickly. Usually they're in intensive care for about a week. But by Thursday afternoon, uh, they had released me, so I was, I was home. And I just want to thank God for saving my life and also for for bringing such a, a, a fast recovery. Um, one of the people, she got a text on Wednesday from a friend of ours in uh, Texas who said she had been fasting and praying, and Merritt said, well, he's doing much better. Go eat a sandwich. So <laughs> you want to say Well, I just praise the Lord for you know, God's faithfulness. He never leaves us, just like the songs we've been singing. And I know that he was there with me. I, you know, as a nurse, I really, I saw that those, his blood pressure go down like that, but it never dawned on me, oh, he could die. It, for some reason, it, it, I was the wife, not a nurse at the time, and I just know that God was with me. But it's funny, um, when he started feeling better, I brought him some new clothes, and I brought him a T-shirt because he had a central line, but they could access it with a short sleeve T-shirt, and I brought him some happy pants, you know, the comfortable kind. And so uh, he, he was wearing those, and a couple of doctors came in and asked him where the patient was. He said, I'm the patient. <laughs> so that's how incredibly well he, he got so quickly. And he was surprising even the doctors. But thank you for all your prayers. Oh, my goodness. You know, I felt loved. You know, he's the one that's sick and doing so poorly. But I was feeling, oh, people really care about him. And they cared about me and the church family and the pastor. I called him at 5 in the morning, I think, or maybe even earlier. And he was right there. Um, and I just really appreciate it. So just... Praise God for being with us, and all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And I know that there, in, in some way there's something good that is coming from this, if it's a testimony or a renewed love for my husband, which is so true, that we take things for granted, you know. You, you know we've been married for 32 years, and, you know, we're comfortable, and you just get used to he's always there, but... I almost lost him, and I know God gave him back. Amen. Amen. Very good. I, want to, I just want to add one more thing. Um, you know, we don't understand God's ways and, you know, why sometimes he heals people miraculously and sometimes he uses doctors and people and circumstances. Um, but there, something kind of weird happened on the two days before I, I was sick. I was reading a verse in Proverbs that says, Do not boast about tomorrow, 
for you do not know what a day will bring forth. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I know that. You know, every day really is a gift from God, but sometimes we know it in our, in our minds but not in our hearts and how we should appreciate everything. And I don't know, I, I'm kind of a stubborn person. And, um, you know, I think some, sometimes men are. We just, we just think we can do everything in our own strength and um, just realize that God really, um, everything is in his control. And, um, you know, we just need to, what God requires of us is to trust in him. You know, he's, our, he's like our father in heaven, and he loves us so much and cares about us, and everything um, that we do really, will, you know, is, is for him. So just give him thanks. Amen. Thanks a lot, Phil. Um, yeah, we're grateful for what God's done for Phil and for Merritt, and, uh, and grateful that you're here today, Phil. <laughs> Very grateful for that. Uh, you know, I think Phil's story demonstrates that God is present in our unfolding circumstances, and he's present with impeccable timing. He's precise. It indicates that God has a precise, detailed plan for every one of his children, for every person. Uh, and he worked that out in Phil's life in that remarkable way that we have just heard about. If he hadn't, in that particular situation, then Phil would not be here today. Phil would be with the Lord right now. You know, we know that sometimes death comes early. Phil said that God does not always intervene in the more miraculous ways you know, in, in our life circumstances, in our adversities and situations. But in Phil's situation, I would say that God's plan, God's purpose, there's more for Phil to do before he goes home. None of us ever know when we're going to go home. And that's up to God. But as long as we're living in this life, one thing we can count upon is God is precisely, intricately involved in working out his plan, however long, our lifespan, our lifespan might happen to be. Uh, and I think that Phil's experience really uh, is a good starting point for understanding this 360-degree view of faith that Jesus Christ has. How do we, what, what is a full, comprehensive understanding of faith, the kind of faith Jesus calls us as Christians to live by every moment of our lives? Well, I think it's similar to one of the features on our smartphones right now, uh, panoramic video. And last summer when I was in Pennsylvania, some beautiful scenery back there, I, I, it was the first time I'd used that feature on my phone. But you can wander your smartphone, as most of you know. And uh, I like to talk about this because it makes me feel cool. <laughs> Here I am, 65 years old, and this guy knows what he's doing with a smartphone. Well, not really. But, uh, but I do know how you can, what you do is you, you know, you just take your phone like this, get it going, and you you know, you can turn around 360 degrees and you can see what's going on around you. Well, I want to ask you this question this morning. Uh, how many of you have a 360 degree faith where your faith and trust in God's involvement in your life is such that you can take your faith and start turning 360 degrees around to all the circumstances all the problems, all the ups and downs, all the needs, all the issues in your life, you can turn all the way around, it's 360 degrees, and 
genuinely, authentically, you can say that you have a faith that is trusting God for every single circumstance that's going on in your life right now. So think about your circumstances for a second. Because this is not just a light thing. I know there's people in here with some really heavy, heavy circumstances. In fact, I would say 99.9% of the people in here have tough, heavy, unexplainable, unfathomable, can't make sense of it kinds of circumstances going on in your life. So, or is your faith more like, well, okay, this is my faith in Christ. Here I go. Oh, man, I get right over here. Here's an issue. Here's something going in my life. I just, I, I'm not trusting God for this. I don't see how, I don't see God's hand at work in this area of my life right now. So, 360 degree faith. Uh, well, we want, I want to challenge you this morning. I'm challenging myself this morning to take a look at what, what it really means to have a full-orbed faith that covers the entire, circum, the entire circumference of our life circumstances. All right. Now, the best description, definition of that kind of faith, I think, comes to us from that one chapter in the Scripture that's called the great hero of faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. And in that passage of Scripture, in that chapter, it's a long one, 40 verses. He spends the first 30 verses or so going through the stories of half a dozen different great heroes of faith in the Old Testament. He sort of spells out their stories. And then he comes to a climax at verse 32, where the the writer of this book, he just begins to pile up one another in rapid succession a whole list of those heroes of faith that we can read about in the Old Testament history of God's Word. Uh, And I want to read from verse 32 forward right now. And as we read, I want you to listen very carefully to the lists. There's really two lists that the writer of this passage gives us, and they're shockingly different in terms of the way these people, the dynamics of their faith. Listen. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, received what God promised. They shut the mouths of lions. That must be referring to Daniel. They quenched the flames of fire. That must be the three Hebrew children that got tossed into the fire. And the fire didn't even burn a hair in their head. God protected them. He was with them miraculously. Others escaped death by the edge of the sword. Uh, The weakness was turned to strength. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle, put whole armies to flight. That must be Samson. Women received their loved ones back again from death. People raised from the dead. That's list number one. Right in the middle of verse 35, the list is abruptly changed. Look at the rest of the list. But others, that is, other great people of faith, were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world. 
wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves, holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. I want to stop right there for a second. Now, having read those two lists, which one of those lists would you like to be on? <laughs> okay, I think your answer would be the same as mine. I'd like to be on list number one, wouldn't you? Where God miraculously steps into my circumstances and changes them and answers my prayer, whatever it might be, answers it miraculously. That's the part of the list I'd like to be on, and I think we all would. And this is usually where, when we think of faith, we usually direct our faith that way. We usually define our faith very often in the miraculous terms, don't we? The faith, by faith we mean the kind of faith that God is going to answer my prayer with a miracle. It's going to change the circumstance. It's going to heal the sickness. It's going to prevent the abuse. It's going to prevent the injustice from coming across my life. Or it's going to be, uh, before an accident occurs, God is going to send his angels down and surround my car and keep it from running into, or that semi from running into my car. That's, we, that's where we, we identify our faith so much of the time. And, and that's right. The scriptures teach us to have a high expectation when it comes to God's ability to work miraculously. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Two of those great gifts that the Holy Spirit has brought into the life of the church. One of them is the gifts of healings. What that means is, here before we get to heaven, there is power in the Holy Spirit to heal people of any kind of a disease and even to heal instantaneously of the worst of diseases on this planet. There's one, of, one of the other gifts is the working of miracles. God still does miracles, the same kind of miracles that Jesus did when he walked on the earth. Jesus can still be expected to do those exact same kinds of miracles in our world, the 21st century, today. That is part of a 360-degree understanding of this wonderful dimension, of this wonderful power of faith in a living God. If we ever delete that from our faith, we have made a huge, huge, huge mistake because we have just shut a huge door on what God can do. And that's, you know, that's what happened in, this, in the town of Nazareth. Jesus, after going through many villages, the Bible says in Mark, the first chapters of Mark, he went through many villages and towns. He was healing people of all kinds of diseases and working miracles. He came to his own hometown, Nazareth. Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 say that when he got there, he couldn't do many miracles because the people in the town didn't have much faith. They, so it shut down. It, they deleted this aspect of what God could do. But I also want to point out an imbalance that God's people sometimes fall into on this very thing. We get a little bit lopsided in our faith. And that's this idea that God always intervenes in our circumstances with miracles. And it's this destructive idea. If I, if, if I only had more faith if my faith was only strong enough, then I would be able to reach right out and take hold of that miracle that God is handing out to me and I could have my miracle today. 
Or if I, would have just, if I would just have pleased God more in the last six months of my life, or if I was just obeying him with more intensity, then God would have stepped in and worked that miracle and prevented this loss or this, this accident or this catastrophe from, from happening. I believe that's one of the most guilt-inducing errors that exists among Christians. And I've had to, more than once, sit down with Christians who've been shattered and devastated by that kind of a narrow view of faith. That God is always going to respond with a miracle. Always going to do it. And if he doesn't, there's something wrong with my faith. My loved one died because I didn't have enough faith. My cancer is not being healed because I don't have enough faith. This accident happened because I didn't have enough faith to, to truly trust God. You know, I, had a, I think I've mentioned this uh, in one other sermon many years ago. One of the friends that uh, Jill and I had when I pastored up in uh, Mount Prospect, his name was Alan Jobst. Alan uh, graduated from high school his big life's goal was to go off and uh, become one of the, uh, get on the uh, pro golf circuit. He was a really, really good golfer. He might have just been able to pull it off. But he went swimming with a bunch of friends the day before he was to leave for California. And when he went swimming, he dove in, and he dove into the shallow end of something or other. But anyhow, he became a paraplegic the rest of his days. Uh, so uh, Alan, I was visiting with Alan one day, and he told me, about an incident at the church where two well-meaning people walked up to him and said, you know, God sent us here, Alan, because he told us he, told us he wants to heal you. And, uh, and so, Alan, if, if you have enough faith, if you have enough faith, we're going to pray for you, and you will get up out of that chair. Okay, now, that devastated Alan, because up to that point in his life, he... He was a guy of faith. He believed. He prayed to God many times. Believe me. God, heal me. Work a miracle for me. I'll glorify you. I'll testify to the power that is in you if you just work this miracle. And he had been, he'd had many, many Christians lay hands on him and anoint him with oil and pray for him the prayer of faith that, that he could be healed. And we have two people walk up, and, and really what they did, they were well-meaning, I know, but really what they did was they just dumped a huge, they, they just brought a, a dump load truck of guilt and condemnation and dumped upon a brother in Christ who's in great suffering and in great need. Uh, Alan uh, lived till his late 30s. And then uh, I, I conducted Alan's funeral. Um, but I will say this, that, that during those years, Alan was a very faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And I know he's out of that wheelchair now. I know that. And when we see him one of these days, he will not be riding around in a wheelchair. Uh, he'll be walking and maybe leaping and jumping and running. And, and maybe he'll be shooting. Uh, maybe he'll be playing. If there's a golf course in heaven, <laughs> my theology's not good there. But uh, I doubt, uh, for all of you golfers, don't look, don't take me on that one, okay? Uh, probably won't be, but anyway, do uh, you see my point here this morning? Uh, the problem with those two people, those two Christians that walked up to Alan was they were ignoring the second part this, of, of the list 
of these great heroes of faith that also show us that a 360-degree kind of faith not only embraces the miraculous working power of God, but it also embraces the God who gives that grace and strength to walk through tremendous suffering. There's a balance to this. Now, the miracle, the, the miracle kind of faith, that's the short path through a circumstance. And I'll tell you what, we would all prefer that, definitely. Suffering and endurance is the long path through, of faith that goes through circumstances, but they both bring glory to God. And it seems to me that most often in this world, it is the long path that we're traveling with occasional, occasional mighty gifts of the Spirit, occasional mighty breaking in of God to just do one of those miracles that just blows your socks off and, we, and astonishes us. Let me ask this question. Is the Lord more involved close up to our circumstances when he's on the scene and does a miracle and less involved when we're walking through that path of suffering? Is he more distant and sort of standoffish when we're walking through pain and frustration than when he's so up close and powerful in the working of a miracle? I think we know the answer to that question. In fact, let's let's let the scripture answer that question. Uh, This very chapter answers it. Uh, here's God's opinion of those on the second part of the list who are walking through the suffering, the ones who were tortured and etc. It says this in verse 37. He talks about how they were living. Some of them were just reduced to living in sheepskins and, and all those kinds of things because of their faith and their commitment to Christ. They went through some terrible times. But then the writer inserts this phrase in verse 38, he says, they were too good for this world. They were too good for this world. The NIV says, of whom the world is not worthy. You know what that tells me? Is that those who are on that long path of walking through suffering while trusting in God, you know what's happening? They're getting a standing ovation in heaven. All of heaven, all the angels are on their feet watching that person go through that ordeal. And they're up there applauding and shouting and they're cheering for that suffering Christian, put the next, get the next step in front of that one and the next step and the next step and keep going and keep trusting and hold on to your faith and believe that God is with you, intricately with you. You know, there's another great feature that we can put onto our smartphones, uh, Instagram. And a few, a few months ago, I had Instagram put on and to prove it, there should be a picture, an Instagram picture. Yeah, there it is. Uh, I always look for reasons to get a picture up here. But uh, uh, back at Christmas time, uh, Ada and I, uh, Jimmy took that picture and he just shot it off to me. Instagram, I got it right away. Well, there was a, a speaker the other day, uh, Christine Kane, and I heard her talking about we live in a day of digital, you know, digital world where we want, because we can do everything instant, Instagram, we want our faith to sort of operate that way too. We want an Instagram faith. My prayer, God, and then three seconds later or less, the, the response, and preferably a miraculous response, three seconds later or quicker, from God. Instant, Instagram faith. But our faith 
often is a lot more like the old-time way of picture-taking. Now, how many of you can remember the old flashbulb cameras? There should be a picture of one up here. How many remember that one, the old flashbulb cameras? How many of you remember, how many of you use those? Okay. Uh, you know, one thing I really liked about those old cameras, I loved the smell of the bulb. <laughs> There's sort of a burnt electrical wire kind of smell. I love that. I miss it, really. Uh, so if any of you want to take my picture in the lobby sometime and use one of those old cameras, you're free to do so. I, I like the smell. But anyway, uh, and then we, we really got cool. I think this might have been in the 70s, mid-70s, somewhere we got the, the Instamatic. How many, re how many remember the Instamatic? Uh, when you had an Instamatic, you were on the cutting edge, all right? Now, I want to ask this question. How many of you in this room have, have never seen either of these before? Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. We do definitely live in a digital world now. Okay. Now, here, you remember when you use these kinds of cameras, you didn't get your picture right away at all. The first thing you did was you went to the store and you bought film. You could buy it in groups of 12 or 24 or 36, maybe even more. And uh, so you say you went and bought a 36 exposure film. Okay, you stick it in your camera. Now, usually you didn't use all 36 pictures at the same time. You might take two or three and then the camera sits for a month and then you take two or three more. You might have that roll of film in there for a year or more. So long that you couldn't even remember the pictures you, that you had in there originally. Uh, and then, when you did fill up, you know, the 36 frames, you took it off to the drugstore, you gave it to a guy who then, the process there was, you didn't walk into the drugstore and then come back an hour later. You came back maybe a week or two later. You took it in, the guy took it into a dark room, and then with very skilled hands in the dark, he dipped your, you know, your film into some solvent. And then with, with great skill, he knew just how long to keep it in there. He lifted it up out of the solvent, and then there's, there's the picture. And, he, and the pictures are being developed. And then after that whole thing's done, you get a call from the drugstore or the camera shop. Hey, your film's ready. Your, your pictures are ready. That was sort of an exciting time back then. Because you'd walk into the store, you'd get this packet of pictures in a folder. You bring them home, and it was, it was sort of like a celebration. You, you, hey, the pictures are here. <laughs> You know, and everybody comes and gathers around, sits down, and you start looking through these pictures, and then all of a sudden you say, I, I forgot, I don't even remember that pose, I don't remember that picture, until it's an aha moment. Okay, now, I believe that the Lord works far more often in that kind of way. I'm grateful for Instagram miracle, instant miracle, solve the problem, it's over, move on. Praise God. Thank God. And may we have more and more and more of that as we keep a genuine, proactive faith. However, when God doesn't give us the Instagram miracle, I think he's using a, um, an old Polaroid <laughs> or something like that. Uh, here's what happens is God is developing the picture of your life snapshot by snapshot. And then he takes you into his dark room he may take your life into some deep shadows. It's going to be hard for anyone in those shadows to see what's going on except him. He can see perfectly. And then he's holding you in his skilled hands, very capable, 
He takes the picture of you that's yet undeveloped, but is in the process, and he holds it under that solvent, whatever that solvent might be. That solvent might be some very painful circumstances going on in your life that you can't make heads or tails out of. But you're in very skilled hands. And then, when, and at just the right time, his timing is always right. At just the right time, he pulls that picture out of that solvent, out of the, out of the darkness, and what do you have there? You have a picture, if it's in color, you have all the colors. You have a distinct, clear picture that the, the, in the, from the hands of the master developer. And then it comes, you get the call, to, you get the call that it's time to, to take a look at those pictures at home. So you go get them, and uh, everybody gets around the table, sits down in the living room, and you, un, you unwrap those pictures. And then you're saying, wow, I forgot. I forgot about that pose. I forgot about that scene in my life. But here's, here's the point. I think that's what it's going to be like on, at the end of the process, when the suffering's done, on the day when we are in his presence. It's going to be looking at the picture of our lives. And I'll tell you what, it's going to be a day of glory and joy where every, every follower of Jesus Christ, I believe, I believe, will be flat on their face in worship before a God who was far more faithful than at many times they may have felt when they were in that dark room under the solvent. And maybe today you in your life are in a dark room and you're under the solvent of a horrible experience. And you can't even, you can't see where God is in the darkness. I want you to know this. He perfectly sees you, every detail. And he is going to, if you will surrender, allow him, he is going to bring every beautiful detail he has planned for your life. He's going to develop that and bring it into a beautiful, beautiful picture. That's 360-degree faith too. Trusting God in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sorrow. Now, whenever the Lord does break in with one of those wonderful eye-opening Instagram miracles, you know what the scripture calls those? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. A miracle is a sign. A sign points towards something. What do miracles point toward? Paul answers that question for us in Romans chapter 8. Verses number 18 to 23. I don't have time to read all those, but I'll give you the basic idea. In verse number 18 of Romans 8, Paul says that the current weight of our sufferings, though it may be very heavy, <laughs> compared to the weight of the glory and the joy that is coming down the pike for us at the end of the process, it can't even be compared can't even be compared to the joy and the glory that God is going to, that's, that's going to be revealed to us and in us on the day we stand before Christ, if we stay true. But right now, Paul says in verses 19, 20, 21, he says, right now, we live in a world where even nature is groaning in the pain of decay, disease, suffering, disorder, chaos, death. Ever since humanity fell away from God, even nature was impacted. Nature fell. Nature is under this curse of decay and pain. 
Paul says this, he personifies nature as if it were a person. And this is how he says it in verse 19. Nature is, creation is waiting with eager expectation for the day when the children of God are going to be revealed, when God's glory is going to be revealed in the children of God and how faithful he was in bringing them through this decayed, diseased, horrible, hurting world. And you know, when, when Paul uses that phrase, eager expectation, the Greek words he use, uses there are of a person that was so excited about something that had been promised to them that they're standing on their tiptoes. They're, they're craning their neck to look on the horizon for the appearance of what they're hoping for. That's the way our creation is right now. And it's all hinged upon the faithfulness of God working in the lives of his people, even in pain. Paul says here that not only is nature groaning, but he says the people of God are groaning too. But you know what? He says there's somebody else groaning. There's three groans in this passage. Verse number 26, the Holy Spirit's groaning too. Where does the Holy Spirit live? He lives in the heart of a, of a Christian. The moment we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence. And whenever, if you're a follower of Christ, Every time you groan under the weight of the pain that you're walking through, there's someone groaning with you. Verse number 26 says, the Holy Spirit groans with us in our weaknesses. And you know what else verse 26 says? It says every one of those groans of the Holy Spirit is turned into a prayer that's lifted up to the Heavenly Father. We have the winners on our side, even in the pain. So, what is that great day that Paul is pointing toward here when all the pain and sorrow, all the decay, all the death is finally going to be gone forever? It's that day when Jesus Christ comes again. It's the day of the resurrection when all nature is going to be completely restored to wholeness and fullness and every one of us. And so here's the point. Every Instagram miracle that happens now it is a sign of what's going to happen on the day of the resurrection, a million times that. Uh, it's going to be a display of the miraculous power of God on the day of the resurrection. Every time there's a miracle now, it's just a sign pointing. It's a little foretaste of what's coming. And it's a, it's a word of hope to every person who's walking through pain. Now, let's come back to Hebrews 11 real quick. Uh, the writer, after giving this list of the people of faith, this is what he says about them all. Both lists, A and B, 1 and 2, verses 39 and 40. He says, all these people of faith from Bible history, they are heroes of faith. They have a great reputation of faith. And yet none of them, it says this phrase, none of them received all that God had promised. All those Old Testament heroes, they didn't, they didn't get everything God promised. They died in faith before that great day of the resurrection when Jesus comes again. And why? Verse number 40 tells us. God was planning something better all along so that they and us could come to that day together. In other words, God wants to add you to this list of heroes of faith so that we all at the final day, we all with Abraham and Moses and Gideon and Samson and all these great heroes, you as a hero of faith, we all step into God's presence someday and we, we do so with great rejoicing at the faithfulness of God
to us during all those times. So here's, here's, our, close, here's our closing this morning. He leaves chapter 11. He goes right into uh, chapter 12, which makes sense, doesn't it? You, leave, you finish chapter 11, you go into chapter 12. Okay, uh, uh, anyway, forget that. Uh, <laughs> I just caught myself saying something that didn't really make sense. So uh, this is what he says in verses 1 and 2. Listen, therefore, it's connected to what we've just heard. Since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith. Who's he referring to? He's all those heroes of faith that have gone in the past. They're now observing your life, looking at us. So let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, Stop right there. I think the picture is this. A stadium, huge stadium. Uh, all the angels of God, all those past heroes of faith are in the, sta- in the stands. And they're looking down on the field. And here we are, all of the current living people of God. We're still in the race. They finished the race. We're still in the race. And the race can be pretty tough. We're the runners on the track. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying to every one of us who's still running this race of faith is to strip off everything that weights us down, that slows us down, the sins that we are so vulnerable to, that can lead us to discouragement, and to keep our eyes on Jesus so that he can keep on perfecting our faith. Now, here's a question, and I ask it to everyone in here today. Is there anything holding you back right now from a 360-degree, full, comprehensive faith that Jesus Christ is working in every area of your life today, now, this moment? Is there anything holding you back from embracing that? Will you completely trust him with everything that is going on in your life right now? What is the circumstance that most distresses you right now? Your greatest struggle. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it is some sort of an injustice that's occurred. It's not fair. Maybe it's a loss. Maybe it's a fear. Are you placing yourself with that struggle in his hands? Is there any sin or obstacle, bitterness, anger, holding you back from the Lord? Are you fighting the Lord today? over that issue in your life. The best thing you could ever do is lose that fight and surrender yourself to him, run up to him with all the faith of your soul and embrace him for, with everything you've got. I guess I'm asking this. Christians can get stuck sometimes. Christians can get stuck. Discouragement. Are you stuck today in your faith? You know what? This would be a good day to get unstuck. It'd be a great day to get unstuck, to face that, deal with that, and recognize the great God for who he is and how much he loves you. And God will not fail. God will not fail. Here's a parting word for you from chapter 10 of Hebrews, verses 35 and 36. It says this, So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings to you, Patient endurance, 
is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for truth. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, that speaks to us in this very, very difficult world, in this dark room. But Lord, we believe that you are developing the picture. And you have capable, skilled hands to do it. You're right on target. You're right on time. And Lord, something beautiful is going to come out of that dark room one of these days. And Father, uh, help us to trust you. And Lord, we, we tell you today, Lord, as a church, that we're never, ever going to put a lid on your power to work miraculously. We thank you for what you did in Phil's life, Lord. Impeccable timing, Lord, when that could have went the other way so very easily. We thank you for your divine intervention, your divine involvement, Lord. Thank you for all the other miracles that people have experienced here and there throughout this church body. Lord, we want the working of miracles. We want the gifts of healings. Oh, God, with absolute maximized faith in the power of God to work miraculously and to heal, we absolutely declare our faith. We believe that, Lord. We believe that with all of our soul and all of our heart and expect to see that. But also, Father, we understand what you're saying in that second part of the list. When the miracle doesn't come for whatever purposes you have, and our faith calls us to deal with the harsh realities of, that this world can dish out, I pray, Lord, that you will give us a very, very enduring faith to trust you, Lord, and to see the end that you have in mind. And so, Father, I pray for any person in this room today that is stuck, disillusioned, hurt, angry, uh, Lord, I, I pray this can be a day of getting unstuck, a day of when their heart is warmed up again. Maybe the heart's got cold. Things can do that to us. I pray, Lord, this is a day when the heart, that faith will warm the heart up again and embrace you with all heart and soul. And Father, we look forward to that great day the apostle was speaking of that day of healing and resurrection and restoration. Lord, what a great day it's going to be. But until that day, help us to know that, that every single day you are with us here. And we, get our, we put our trust in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.